When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This is the Project Upland Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. This long-awaited episode, we return with Ryan Mulcahy of Born to Run Kennels. We're talking all about bird dogs today. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in to episode number 144. is presented by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. And I'd like to thank all of our partners on the podcast for their continued support. More to come on all of them on future shows. But for today, I've shortened the sponsor segment because the intro is going to be a little bit longer today. Got to catch up with the listeners, get everybody up to speed, and let them know what lies ahead. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. I appreciate you being with me and hope you didn't miss me too much. It was a long break, the longest one since I started doing this show, and it was a bit unplanned, but I'm back. I'm excited, and we've got some really cool things in the works. Can't wait to podcast my way with you all right into the bird season. It's coming up quick. We're over halfway through July. Since I last checked in with the listeners of this podcast, that was May 11th. So a lot has happened since then, and we are a whole lot closer to bird season, which is exciting for sure. So since the last episode, there have been a couple developments for me personally with the podcast and with the work that I'm doing. 
that I want to bring the listeners up to speed on. And furthermore, there's a loose end or two that I needed to tie up from our episode back in May. The most important of those being the Pike Gear and Garmin giveaway, if you recall that. We had Brent Pike on. He offered up a wingman vest, and I had a Garmin Zero S1 clay shooting trainer to give away. We put a little survey out, asked some questions about Pike Gear. We got hundreds of responses. Appreciate everybody taking the time to fill that out and enter the giveaway. We did have a winner. Gary from Minnesota took home the Garmin Zero S1 and a Pike Gear Wingman vest. So pretty sweet giveaway. That was awesome. Thanks everybody for participating. We got some really quality feedback for Brent and the Pike Gear team, and we certainly appreciate that. All right, fast forward to right now. Want to give everybody listening a little bit of a look into the near future as it relates to this podcast and some of the things that I am working on. Uh, since I last put out an episode, I have accepted a position to work with Upland Gun Company, uh, who you may recall from a former episode, uh, in a professional capacity. So I am part of the Upland Gun Company team now, which is very exciting. As some of you may know, my friend Jerry Havel, owner and founder of Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, is as well an owner and founder of Upland Gun Company. I've known him for years and have been excited about this project dating back to last fall when I first got to see some of the guns and actually hunt with them to where they are at today, where they're selling guns, building guns. In fact, a whole pile of them just came in from Italy, including one that I will be spending some time with shooting a little bit this summer and this fall. Very excited to get my hands on it, and I will share my experiences and thoughts on that gun with everybody here listening. But I will say, from here on out, you can consider any opinion or advice or thoughts I give on Upland Gun Company to be absolutely biased. That will be a given as long as I continue working Again, in a professional capacity with Upland Gun Company, I will, of course, be happy to talk about them, and I will do my best not to over and over again shamelessly plug them here on the podcast, but I'm sure I won't be able to help myself from time to time. But most importantly, I want people listening to this podcast to know that I got involved with Upland Gun Company because I believed in the idea, and I'm really excited about what they have already done for their customers and what we hope to do in the future. So if you have any questions regarding up and gun company, guns, shotguns, all that kind of stuff, you know, I love to talk about it. And one of the many hats I'm wearing for Jerry and Dan over at Upland Gun Company is talking to customers. So if you've been looking at their guns and you're interested in one, you know how to find me. You can email me at nick.larson at uplandguncompany.com. All right, that's out of the way. Now, We'll transition to the podcast, moving forward, where I'm headed. I've been hosting this Project Upland podcast since September of 2017, coming up on four total years. It has been an absolute blast. I have connected with so many listeners and guests and had so many conversations on here that have just added so much value into my life. And I know because I get the feedback from listeners that we've we've at least added some value along the way to the people that listen to the show and and we've got fans and I'm uh, I'm super super grateful for all the support that I have received personally in hosting this podcast and I have no intentions of stopping or slowing down. In fact, I'm planning to 
push the evolution of this podcast forward, and I'm excited about it. And that is going to involve one pretty significant change on the podcast that I personally host, although the transformation from where we are today to where I see us going will be pretty seamless, as I don't envision the actual structure of the show changing a whole lot overnight. But to make a long story short, in the very near future, the name of this podcast will be changing, which is to be determined. More more on that in a minute. But after nearly four years of hosting, producing, publishing this show, I've got a pretty good understanding of what goes into it, and I've learned a ton along the way. I know the kind of value that I can put into this show, and I know how much people appreciate that, again, because of the emails and the people that I talk to and the reviews of the show. And I don't 100% know where the world of podcasting or outdoor media is going to go. But with that in mind, I have decided that in order to make sure that I am squared away and I can navigate wherever this show does go or evolve into, I need to own this podcast. That has become more and more clear to me as time has gone on. And at this point in time, it is something that I need to do. I need to rebrand the show, take ownership of the show and its content, and carry that into the future with me. Because again, I don't know what this will evolve into, what the world is going to look like in five to 10 years. And as a result, it has become more and more important to me to take complete ownership of this show. And fortunately, I am going to be able to do that in a pretty seamless fashion because of the people that have been supporting me at Northwoods Collective and Project Upland for the past four plus years. And we've reached an agreement that will allow me to take ownership of the show that I have hosted and produced over the last four years, rebrand it. Obviously, I'm not going to take the Project Upland name with me. That that stays with Project Upland and the Northwoods Collective team. So a little bit of a makeover will occur. But like I said before, the underlying show is not going to change a whole lot overnight. Certainly by me taking ownership of the show and kind of rebranding it, you know, I'm sure there will be some changes that occur, but that will be organic and it will happen based on listener feedback, my guess, and the topics and the things that I want to lean into and cover. And so all that will just kind of happen naturally and I don't I don't imagine that will be a surprise or anything to the listeners. So for now, what I really want everybody to know is that this is a little bit of a turning point for me on the podcast. It's certainly a significant moment in the history of the podcast, but it comes right at a time when we have more listeners than we ever have. We've got a lot of momentum and I'm really excited about where we're headed and where my guests and listeners and myself are going to take this podcast into the future. And I just want to thank everybody that has been a listener in the past, has supported me, has supported the podcast in many, many ways. I appreciate each and every one of you. And I hope you are as excited as I am to steer this show in a slightly new direction. There will be much more to come on that very soon. Again, the change is not going to happen overnight, but it will happen soon. And for now, I just want to leave listeners with a little tidbit here. I have 
a couple of ideas for the name of the new show. However, nothing is set in stone. And I don't want to overlook the fact that I've got a lot of loyal listeners. Many of you have listened all the way from episode one, which again, sometimes makes me cringe, but hey, we've made some progress and that is absolutely on display if you you go back and listen to some of the early episodes. So I don't want to overlook the fact that many of you have a very good understanding of the show, the way I interview, obviously my interest that I can't help but mix in from time to time. And I imagine there is a possibility where perhaps a listener might have an idea for the name of the show that I host moving forward a crowdsourcing of the podcast name of sorts. Now, I'm not going to make a huge deal about it and blast it out everywhere, but I just want the listeners to know that if you do have an idea or you have some thoughts really on any of this on the new show or if you got questions or anything like that, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can hit me up on Instagram or I'll leave my email here and I will uh, keep you up to date on all of that kind of stuff as we move forward. But if you got a show name for me, I would love to hear it and I will say this, if I do end up using a name that somebody submits to me, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I'm going to do something for you to kind of make it worth your while, whether I take you hunting at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp or get you some gear or something. I'm going to to make it worth your while if you offer up the name that ultimately becomes the name of the show. Like I said, I got a few ideas, but I would appreciate any bright ideas from loyal listeners out there. All right, like I said, more to come on that. I will keep you updated as things progress. But the podcast is back. It's July. We're coming up on bird season. I'm going to be doing a bunch of episodes, getting them recorded here in the end of July and in August. And I'm going to start firing these things out. No more long breaks. We are back. We're rolling. It's going to be bird season soon. I can't wait. I have set a goal thanks to listening to Dave Miller on a podcast with Tyler Webster. Dave said, get out and shoot 500 clay targets this summer and see the difference in the field this fall. I'm taking Dave's challenge. Dave, uh, as as you know, Dave and CZUSO have been a supporter of this podcast. So I'm going to step up and I'm going to, I'm going to take Dave's challenge. I've got 50 targets out of the way, which means I've got 450 to go. But I got plenty of time to do it, and I hope some of you have been out there shooting. Got some dog training to do. Little Miss Rose, my now one-year-old English setter puppy, had a great season last year, and I'm really excited about her season upcoming. We've done a little bit of training this summer, pretty low-key stuff, but I've got a few things that I want to work on prior to hunting season. Hartley, the seven-year-old English setter, recovering from his New Year's Eve cruciate surgery, doing very well. We've had a really long time to condition and get him back up to speed. He's running in the woods. He's covering ground, and I am excited to see him return to the fields this fall. I cannot wait to see both of them run together from time to time, and I know there are lots of similar stories and shared excitement out there among the listeners. So with all that said, we've got plenty to catch up on. I just want to say again that I am so thankful to everybody that listens to this show. And again, all the support that I've received from a bunch of you, it has not gone unnoticed, nor will it ever. I appreciate all of you. And I'm excited to be back hosting the show. We've got some really, really good stuff upcoming. And as you know, I'm always open to suggestions or feedback please send that my way. For now, you can still email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. 
And with that said, I want to jump into today's episode. We got a good one here. I've been away for a while, so we got an extra long one. I considered splitting this into two parts, but I owe you all. So we've got Ryan Mulcahy, former guest of the podcast, dog trainer, very, very knowledgeable student of dog training, the way that he talks about dogs and animals. It's a word that he likes to use, and that's one that it, it always catches my attention because the way that he uses it just, I think, is indicative of sort of his approach to all this stuff. We did Q&A. I put out a request to some folks on Facebook to submit questions, so we've got some really good back and forth with me asking listener questions, Ryan giving his response and experience turned out to be a great show there's some tidbits in here that i think if you are new to dog training or you're working on things this summer there are going to be some really really key items in here for you to pay attention to so buckle up got a couple hour show for you enjoy it and i will be back very soon with the next episode thanks for listening everybody let's welcome into the conversation and onto the podcast from born to run kennels ryan mulcahy With that, I'm going to welcome back to the Project Upland podcast, buddy of mine and dog trainer, former guest of the podcast, Ryan Mulcahy. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's certainly my pleasure and the listener's pleasure to have you back on the podcast. This was this is one that you and I have been talking about it for a little while. I had some scheduling difficulties and we finally got you on and I put a thing in our Project Upland community Facebook page asking for dog training questions and we got a whole pile of them for you Ryan so hope you're ready (laughs) hopefully I can answer them properly (laughs) (laughs) before we jump into the questions from the listeners and all of that fun stuff tell me what's spring like out in Idaho right now um well it's really good um my fiance is here and she just moved out here um this spring which uh we're having a lot of fun to be honest um I, I just I know you're supposed to enjoy your significant other, but I, I just really enjoy my, my quality time, like being able to spend with her. Um, it's just, it's huge for me and it's very rejuvenating. So, um, I'm so happy she's here and, uh, she moved here from Ohio, but she's, uh, from Wisconsin originally. She's from Green Bay. Um, so yeah, that's uh, an exciting side of, of life right now. And, uh, and then just kind of finishing up um, dogs that have been here in the spring. And uh, we've got some litters in the works and just a lot of really enjoyable things coming up. But, yeah, so springtime right now, we're, we're just kind of, you know, slowly relaxing now. Um, we're going to get around for a summer camp. And uh, I'm going to take a few weeks of just downtime, and which I did not take last year. And, um, hopefully be really refreshed going into summer camp and, uh, mentally excited about everything that's coming. So, yeah. So in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. You're working on that work-life balance a little bit. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. I wish I had a little life, but you know, um, being back here, I've got some great friends, um, that, you know, at least one or two days a week, we go out for pizza and, and have a, a beer or something. And, um, uh, and Jess, my, my fiance, she, she keeps things enjoyable for me on that. She keeps me to remind, reminds me like what I need to focus on and what's real in life. So, um, it kind of keeps yeah. a little balance, but 
<laughs> having your why close by and in proximity definitely helps man yeah and that's what i'm <laughs> learning well when you're a bachelor and, and i get in this habit it's like you just work 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 and like yeah. you're consumed by it because you're trying to get better and um it doesn't always improve <laughs> you know it's yeah. um i was notorious for not taking days off when i was training and um and like for six months at a time i wouldn't take a day off and then when i was at the end of a cross country or track season, it was like 15 days, nothing like you just, I'd, I'd lay in bed for 10, 12 hours a day kind of thing. And, uh, so I'm kind of like one of those people that likes to work really hard and then rest really hard. And I'm trying to find balance with it now. <laughs> but Good deal, man. Yeah. Well, be- before we, I don't want to, Miss this just in case folks didn't tune into the previous episode they haven't come across you just give a really brief intro kind of who you are what you do and generally dog stuff um yeah so my name is ryan mulcahy um i am the owner and operator which sounds weird to me to say uh of born to run kennels <laughs> um uh, i have started pro training in the last few years so um that means taking dogs for the public and getting them prepared for hunting season. Mostly. Um, I don't really work trial dogs for the public unless it's starting them. Um, I have a great passion for bird dogs and just dogs in general, working dogs. I really enjoy. And, um, yeah, it, it just, um, we go from the prairies of Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota to the Canyon lands of Idaho, Oregon, Nevada, and then down to South Texas in the winter. Um, and so we're, we're kind of on this endless fall and, um, just training dogs on wild birds. Um, I would say majority, majority of the year that you can work them, we're, we're doing that, but we have to be very, uh, intelligent about how we do it. So, um, yeah, I guess that's about it. <laughs> um, I, in a nutshell, it's, uh, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, that's perfect. And like I said, we we had you on the podcast before. You've done some other ones, so there some of your backstories out there. If people want to dive into that and hear more about kind of your history with dogs and that stuff's been covered. But I am curious. This was your second season heading down to Texas this winter, right? Yes, it was. Yep. Yeah. How that how that go? Give us a little recap on it. Um. So to kind of give you an idea, the first day on the ground um, was I think like mid December. Um, and I went and I, Mark Wagner was there. Um, Mark's uh, from Duluth originally. I, I believe Duluth. Oh, no way. Um, and he he started off with Llewellyn Setters, just to kind of give you an idea of Mark. Uh, he's border-to-border bird dogs. Um, but he started off with Llewellyn's and going to uh, Smith Clinics. And uh, Mark is a, an amazing guy. Um, and I've gotten to learn quite a bit from him. But like our first day of training together... He put four dogs on the truck. I put four dogs on the truck. We went out and worked them. I don't know that my crew was on the ground any more than 45 minutes down there. And we had six broke cubby finds. And I was like, oh, man, we're going to crush it this year. Well, then uh, you start getting your ass handed to you. Uh, <laughs> like dogs get beat up and um, and they get worn down. And it's like, yeah, you can do it for a little bit. And they could probably knock it out for an hour in the right conditions right off the get-go. But um you know, you're, you're basically putting a dog through a brush hog and, uh, you know, they, they go through a breakdown period and, and we went through it. 
Um, I had to borrow a couple dogs from Mitch Hurt in the first uh, three weeks of the season um, just to have some dogs to cycle through. I didn't have a couple of them coming up yet. Um, they weren't ready on the string. So uh, Mitch really helped me out. And they were dogs that I've worked in the past and uh, I've really enjoyed. Um, so that kind of helped. And then once uh, my main crew recovered, we basically guided on five dogs this year. And I did not have as many days as Mark. Mark had the most, but I had quite a few days. And, uh, yeah, we were basically on five dogs. And, uh, um, gosh, thankfully they are, they have the genetics that they do. Otherwise I'd be really concerned. You kind of know after a while what they are mentally and and where they are. And, uh, these dogs, they'll tell you where they're at that day. And, uh, we had some really good performances, but it, there were some challenges. And then at the very end of the season, we still had some really tremendous um, finishes. And uh, a young dog really shined, um, which I was happy about. And I was kind of waiting for him to do that. So that that was one of my highlights was seeing him really start putting things together. Um, so, yeah, it was overall good season. And I, I'm looking forward to next year and you know, it's kind of a proving ground now for a breeding program. Um, I don't, I don't know of many people in the country, if any, um, that are going the three locations that we are and dogs have to prove themselves going to wild birds, um, and showing character around it at a natural genetic stance, not a training stance. I think that's a little different because we have dogs. Uh, I've got dogs on the string right now that run around down there and they look like they can go for days down in that country and up here, but they don't find birds. And so you got to basically help them find birds and then hopefully make them into a bird dog and they can be productive. But those are not dogs that I will ever be bred in my program. They're, you know, it's just, it, it's, um, so in that sense, it's great down there because it, you're really putting them through the test, in my opinion, of being a bird dog. And we're losing that nationally. We are losing that. It's something that's, um, very difficult to find right now. Yeah. Good stuff, man. I, I have one other question on that. And I was, I'm kind of curious, like where your confidence is at finding birds down there yeah. and as it relates to that how much i think i have like this may be a totally false impression but i just kind of picture south the you know, texas quail hunting like a lot of vast landscape that kind of looks similar and so it's like how do you put the dogs on birds are are you as the trainer really identifying key areas to put them in or do the dogs do a lot of the work and tell you where the birds are so um it depends on the pasture on our ranch um, and it depends on the ranch and the part of South Texas that you're in. Uh, West Texas is completely different than South Texas. Um, the, the guys down there, they go back and forth, say one's tougher than the other. I, I, I can't attest to that. I know that every one of them, it's like any part of the country, the dog's got to have a certain amount of fortitude, um, to, to, to be good. Like, you know, if you're going to be a bird dog, it better come from within, um, not from the training it, it's there's a there's a different type of connection so uh, down there we've got areas where it's like 
you you better have a grouse dog like that type of animal a dog that patterns to the front and can you know thread their way through some of the thickest stuff and i i get teased a lot because it's from sunny um i don't like running that stuff i actually i hate it um because i like cutting a few horses loose so to speak and um and sunny does too but like that's not really i don't get to train in that i'm training in open country for the most part and uh sure um so it's yeah um but we've cut areas that like it's so tight you you can barely see 50 yards on either side of the trail but there's there's trees right up on the trail and then you've got um, far-reaching mots and other pastures. It just really depends. So you got to know on our ranch, you got to really know your pasture because we're running typically one dog at a time, which is not a normal Texas thing. Um, they no, they yeah. they typically have two, maybe even three dogs on the ground at a time. Um, we also don't feed roads, so when those pastures uh, on other ranches get a lot of pressure, or even ours birds start moving away right just like anywhere in the country um they move off that and they start moving away they start hearing a truck coming they're running they might even bust and fly and so certain dogs that rarely ever have unproductives can't get birds penned and so yeah it just kind of depends on certain things with that and um but I, I like that country that has far-reaching mots. I love to see a dog reach in there and, and grab a hold of the country. But that's that's something that's always been appealing to me. Cool. What is the one last one here? What's the strategy logic on the one dog on the ground at a time? Is that strictly a dog power thing or do you got something else going on? Well, it's it, we could run two. But that means you also have to have more dogs. So mm-hmm. if I really want to have a, so a lot of these guys down in Texas that have 30 dogs on their string, how much time do you get to spend with all 30 of them? Right. How many are truly sure. broke? How many are, do you really intimately know? And there might only be a couple of them that you can really count on. And then the rest are just fillers. So that's kind of more of a, um, of a Mariposa thing, I would say. Um, but yeah, so that, and if we're running two dogs at a time and say they're they're basically like vacuums on the ground, right? And they're getting in the covey after covey after covey. Well, yeah, you, you get a lot of shooting opportunities, but you also put a lot of pressure on birds. And so it just kind of depends. It's more, I guess on our ranch, it's more of a Hail Mary move to put multiple dogs on the ground. Where a lot of people, they... Um They'll run two dogs as like a Hail Mary when they need a, a covey at the end of a, a day. Just to really, you're, you're trying to end on a good note. And um, so some people will grab two dogs, put them on the ground and try to gut it out that way. Um, usually I my Hail Mary is I grab Brooke or I grab Buddy off the truck. And uh, you basically just send them in there really deep. Um, you know, and especially if it's open country. Uh, when birds are here in those trucks and they're they're trying to get out of there, you got to have a dog that's um, aggressive enough to keep them flat, is I you know just to where they're not running, they're not flying, or or to keep with them. And so both of those dogs have proven to me um, that they can do that. And I I would say it probably goes back to um, a certain part of their genetics because he was the same way. But um, there was a dog called Front and Center that was very much the same way on on quail and and running birds, 
And, uh, gosh, it's so much fun for, to be a handler of that. Um, so I, I just thoroughly enjoy, um, watching a dog where their hackles are standing up and they're, they're just, just the complete connection to the, the birds and the covey. And, uh, you walk up and, um, one in, one in particular Brooke had this year, um, I sent her in there pretty deep, um, and we got up there. I mean, I had my driver rolling us up there, I think in fourth gear, just to get in on the cuffy. <laughs> like we're going through this pasture, just, I mean, and I'm just telling him keep rolling basically. And, um, and he, and the driver, his name's Joe and Joe's like, man, I was, I didn't know how far in she was. I said, oh yeah, she was, she was pretty deep. And, um, we got off the truck and, uh, we had a father and son on the truck and, I don't think the son was any more than 14 years old and they both shot birds out of that covey. And that, that was a pretty, you know, memorable moment for me as a handler is to be able to watch that. So it's, uh, it's pretty special. Absolutely, man. Well, if anybody, uh, if anybody got fired up by that and they want to come down and hunt with you, we'll, well, your, your contact info will be in the show notes and, and they can look at, look into that. But yeah. before I take up all the listeners' time, we're going to jump into listeners' questions, and we're going to go right from the right from the Facebook thread. And we will some of these. There's some overlap in here, but we'll try to try to hit them all head on, and okay. and we'll have some fun with it. All right, man. Yeah, sounds great. All right. So first up is from Adam. He's asking for tips on training for a hard mouth. My GWP will pick up anything, even woodcock except grouse she tends to chew on pretty hard and spits it out a lot when retrieving it what do you think oh well um i'm not the most uh <laughs> i'm not the best person on retrieving um <laughs> but i i i would say getting the dog desensitized to where it's almost like repetitive um as far as retrieving and then um you know there's there are some tools out there I, i've heard of people using um like a studded harness over them so that the dog will basically pick it up, but, um, and not crunch down. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I've heard from other people, you know, dogs crunching and eating birds. It's, um, it's a pretty bad habit to break because eventually they'll, they'll do it again. However, I'm that, that's not really my forte. Um, (laughs) Uh, I would say desensitizing, so to speak of like repetition, um, time and time again, repetition, repetition, just getting the dog to where they hold it, not, and it's, it's almost ingrained in them how they hold and the posture and pack around and just getting, getting them to carry things. And, um, that would be more of what I would say, but, um, like I said, uh, I'll preface with this or <laughs> preface with any, anything retrieving. Um, if for a, for what I do, if a dog doesn't naturally retrieve, um, or doesn't show signs of it, I'm not forcing it on them. And, sure. um, so it would be more so from my perspective of a repetition thing of just getting them to learn how to handle uh, any object, not just birds, but anything. There's far better trainers out there for that. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and that's and that's fair enough. That's that's all we ask of you, Ryan, is just tell us where your strengths and weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. I think we can all appreciate that. Um, kind of somewhat related, our buddy Scott from Alaska says, is it really a bird dog if you have to force it to put a bird in its mouth? <laughs> well, um, 
it depends on what you want, right? So um, Rue does not Rue doesn't retrieve. Um, I don't know that many of my dogs retrieve. Some of them would at certain points, but they uh, they'll hunt dead and they'll pack a bird around. They I don't necessarily make them come to me with it, but um, they they better want. I, I mean, I think they should want to have a bird in the mouth, and I encourage it when they're young. Uh, when we start them out with pigeons or something, um, or when we, you know, shoot a bird for them uh, at certain parts of the year, I, I encourage them to pack it around, like, go have some fun with it. This is your moment. Um, so kind of on his part, you know, he, he does have a, a, you know, good perspective of that. Um, but if a dog doesn't want to retrieve, but it wants to go find more birds, I'm all for that too. And, but I, I guess my my biggest thing is, you will t- talk to people that train and they constantly train it into the dog, right? Yeah. So they train them to do a certain thing. Well, that's, it may not be natural for them to do that, that specific task. Well, they're going to breed forward what they naturally do, right? So for me, um, if I have to train it into the dog, well, down the line, if that's something I specifically want, like say if I wanted a lab that naturally retrieved that, you know, I didn't have to force fetch. Well, I'm not going to breed a dog that had to force fetch, and especially to a dog that, you know, it just continues to grind um, if I want that natural retrieve. Um, it's genetics. And we're actually, more people are thinking about training rather than genetics, right? So if we can get it as easy as possible for ourselves, where a dog wants to pack that bird around, wants to pick it up and retrieve back to us, then we're probably doing ourselves a favor. So. That's my thought on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Scott was having a little bit of fun with that question, but I figured I would, it was kind of related to the previous one. And I asked you anyways, but I think you made a good point in that whether your dog is a quote unquote natural retriever, like at those early stages, does the dog want to grab a bird? Does it want to pick it up? I mean, that's, those are, those are signs that are, they, they're a lot deeper than like, does it, is it a natural retriever? Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, yeah, you're not you're spot on. Um, there's a lot more depth to it. So, all right, moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, uh, Chris did not have a question, but uh, he he appreciated the previous podcast, and he's looking forward to listening to this one. Peyton asks, as yep. a professional trainer, what kind of problems do you dread having to fix, whether they pop up naturally, just as part of the dog's personality, or are made? What comes to mind? Okay, I'm going to go general on this, but apprehend apprehension. You're, you're not going to like my answer well, if I give it, but I, I get it a lot <laughs> out of certain breeds, a lot of apprehension and squirreliness. And that is, that's genetic a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times you get a lot of gun shyness, different things of the sort. That's why it's so critical to go to a really good breeder, not someone that's telling you what they are, but that has a reputation of producing a certain type of animal generation after generation. And so if, if, a, if a breeder is telling you what they are, I, I, it starts raising red flags. If they say, hey, come on out, take a look at this or that. And so and I, kind of back to the point, the apprehension, we've been around people in life that um, show apprehension when they're in certain scenarios, right? That nervous energy and it goes fight or flight in certain that will stay true. So the, the main cause of kind of, or the main thing that I would say kind of comes off of it would be, um, 
gun shyness, right? So that's an easy, an easy side. That's pretty difficult to get a dog through unless they have a lot of bird dog in them. I've seen dogs that were very apprehensive. An apprehensive dog might actually just be a very intelligent animal that is in a bad environment, right? Or it could be completely genetic. And I've seen a lot of it where it was genetic, um, but I've also seen it where it was just mostly environment was not right for it. And the dog comes right out of it, right? They, they get into a new environment. It's conducive. They're, they love birds, and then they come out of it. So that's that would probably be one of the biggest things. But then also um, the apprehension of having a handler touch them. And I constantly see this, a dog that you cannot walk by the collar. Like my hand is under your collar, and they're fighting their putting their nails into your arm just by you trying to walk them from a trailer to a kennel. And it's like, I mean, I've had a couple of them try to chew my ass up because of it. <laughs> just because yeah, I'm like bet. trying to walk. They, you know, they're so unused to someone being in their space and it panics them. Well, and I've seen it with other trainers, the same thing. And there are, there's more of that than there should be. Uh, at this point in time, but that's, um, that's another, another day. Um, but I would say just apprehension in general. So making sure you create a great environment for the puppies, um, and the dog's development, it's, it's a learning environment. So what they're doing is what they're learning and then, um, build on that. So build their confidence through positivity of birds, right. Or exposure to the grounds and different things of the sort, and that'll create a better, well-rounded dog. But man, um, a dog that's apprehensive is, that's hard to get through anything with. It's just like a human that's apprehensive. So yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Logically, just, you know, you as the trainer, most people are concerned with steadiness, get my dog on birds, point, mm-hmm. all that fun stuff. Well, you can't, you can't work on that. If you have a dog that's not at where they're ready to learn, have the right attitude. You got to go, you got to take a couple steps backward to get that apprehensive dog to it's, to where it's ready to learn. So absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's spot on. So, yep. All right, man. Mike asks, and there's, we got a, we got a handful of questions on steadiness, so we may get into some overlap here, but this is kind of very general. Mike's asking steps when starting steadiness training. And a lot of people asked about, what signs do you look for when to start steadiness? We'll kind of get into that, but maybe just walk us through your basic process of steadiness training in the early stages. Okay. Well, um, let's preface this. Um, I'm, we're working wild birds. Okay. So that's going to be different than part of the country. So, um, Got it. I've, I've broken dogs out that were on pen raised birds mostly, but, um, you it's, it's a little different. It's a little different perspective. It's a different compliance. So what I mean by that is um, if a bird's sitting right under that dog's nose, that's a different type of compliance around game and a different type of character. Um, so if I'm steadying a dog up, um, it's I'm, I'm basically taking chase, okay? That's all I'm really doing. And this is something that when I first got into it, I was breaking dogs with the idea of, um, pen raise, throw down field trials, and then wild bird hunting on the side. So it kind of ironed itself out. Um, they can be the same dog, but they can also be completely different dogs. 
um, and some thrive on one and some thrive on the other. So knowing where that dog is on what you are focused on. So I'm focused on wild birds. If I've got a young dog that is prepared to be steadied up, then what, what I'm seeing out of them is they are showing me that they handle for me in the country. They are going to birds and they are efficiently finding birds almost every time on the ground. And when they get in and around their birds, they're telling me, hey, I need your help now. So they want to point those suckers until you get there and they they might anticipate the flush once you're there because they're excited, mm-hmm. um, but you can stop them. Okay, so meaning oh, when those birds take flight, you just stop the dog. Um, after a while, you're taking that chase. So you're not allowing that dog to go with the birds. And, and really what that's doing is they say, oh, okay, every time those birds go to flight, that means plant my feet because you've, you've worked on that in training. And so that's mostly what I do, um, is I I get to just take their chase. So I show them a few concepts with pigeons. We work on stop the flush. And, uh, that was something I were, I learned mostly from Kim Sampson, um, transitioning from pigeons to uh, wild birds was I almost like only start with stop the flush drills. And, um, and so once I could, once I teach a dog, like, Hey, birds in the air, plant your feet. Then once they're on the ground, I kind of actually changed this. So, uh, once if birds are in the air, I'm not like hauling or like slamming on that flank collar to stop them. What I'm doing is, um, I actually kind of let them take it because I already know they want to point birds on wild birds. And once they get into a situation where they're pointed, and say that birds got up after they established or I put the birds to flight. If they go with them, I just roll them to a stop. Well, I'm not trying to get instant compliance. I'm trying to create a foundation of this is what you do now. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. So like how, how are you stopping the dog there? Uh, I'm stopping them on the belly at this point. Um, so I've, I've collar. established yeah, a flank collar. I've established a point of contact to where I can stop them on the, on the belly. And all I'm doing is taking chase. When birds go to flight, you plant those feet. And after a while, the whole, the hope and goal is that they just want to point birds because they want to breathe it in. They don't want to point birds to chase anymore. They want to breathe it in. Well, that to me is, is helping that dog more. They're, they're actually, having better visual of the situation and themselves in the situation. And then kind of fast forward when you put them on the ground with another dog. And this is something I picked up from, um, Sonny Picars was, um, actually one of the better situations to take chase, um, and steady them up is from a backing position. So there's no pressure on them. You say that I'm training with somebody else and I've got the backing dog. Well, my dog's backing, and he wants to go with the birds on the flight and that, that dog that found the covey is broke. So say the other trainer puts those birds to flight and my dog starts going with it. Well, I roll them to a stop and I just let them stand there and they t- try to take a step. I stop them again. Well, pretty soon they start looking around and they see other dogs standing there or another dog, you know, and then they say, oh, okay, well, we don't chase anymore. And so really we're getting it to where they want to do it naturally rather than me making them stand there. 
all I'm doing is saying, hey, stop chasing. That's it. And after a while, they just want to stand there because they know that they don't get to chase. So that I know that's a long answer, but um, to kind of well, give an idea. Great, man. <laughs> um, now, if I'm if I'm doing um, more compliancy of like pen raise and farm raised birds, you're you're putting the dog in a different situation where birds can actually walk right underneath them. I can't really fault a dog for breaking on that, but some of those field trials with the throwdown birds, it, it's basically a demonstration. It's not really. Um, what we're doing as hunters, but there's a compliancy side of you will stand your birds. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of tools to help that dog stand those birds at that point. Um, I won't get into all those. Some of them can be a little, uh, catastrophic, but you hope that you don't have to. And so that's why if you can teach them, we can manipulate things better with launchers and pigeons, um, Mm -hmm. to get that bird out of the situation than we can with a pen raised bird that, can barely fly. Right. So, um, it's a training concept with that pigeon. And then we can always go either end of the spectrum. We can go to the side of the spectrum with wild birds, which is pretty, pretty comparable to that pigeon getting out of there. Or we can go to the other side where, you know, that dog needs to stand there. I'm going to make you stand here. You don't get to move, um, at all. Like you have to stay. These birds are going to be right under your nose. And so there's just a little bit different pressure um, on that animal to do it. Now, what I see a lot of times is when people are steadying up dogs for that um, Nastra field trial or the um, the Penrays field trial, not to say that they can't, you, you have to iron them out, like I said about kind of how I started, but I still see a lot of dogs at a point right at the ground, like a, like a bird's right under their nose. Mm. Um, so you have to be aware of, is what I'm doing or help trying to help this dog do, is it going to make them pointified or point for scent or are they point and body scent? And so, you know, you have to help uh, work them through certain things at, at different times, depending on the animal. Um, got it. I, I've got some, and, and that's knowing the animal. So does that animal do, I guess, do they not want confrontation or do they not care? Like if they have it. So, some of the dogs, oh, they could care less about confrontation and like you have to ring them up, you know, just really get on them f- for breaking. And then other dogs don't want any of that. And so you got to understand your balance point of how much pressure do I put on this animal? How much work do I do with them? Uh, when are they ready? And so for me being geared towards wild birds, um, those dogs have to tell me when they're ready. And so coming full circle this is why certain dogs i've actually struggled with um and i've got one on the string right now i've almost got to help her do more training to make her a bird dog and then bring her into the situations because she doesn't find as many birds as my other young dogs and so i'm looking for them to efficiently find birds well i've seen dogs go to two or three years old where they were in her boat and the trainer's like, well, they just don't find birds. You know, there's a, a window that you have to help them out to make them a bird dog um, and uh, and get them to be efficient. But like I said as well, if I have to help you, um, you know, it, it's you're definitely not getting bred. So um, it doesn't matter if you've got other qualities that people should like. You're not getting bred in my program. So... 
Good stuff, man. I I'm gonna I want to circle back to something that I'm gonna kind of insert my own question here, but it will be relevant to a lot of the steadiness questions and stuff. Yep. When you're talking about stop the flush as that being kind of an early thing, you alluded to you've you've established a point of contact with the flank caller, but my question is, say we haven't done a stop to flush drill yet. We've got a young dog. We're in this early stage. Does the dog have to know whoa before you start doing stop to flush? Are you using a check cord around the flank to establish that? Like, what do we do the very first time we're going to try to stop to flush drill? And what do we have to have established obedience or command wise? So we're going to uh, start with a stop to flush drill, um, which means you're going to be more controlled of the situation. Um, you, you definitely, like I said before, you got to know that dog and know their tendencies. So, but I like putting them on a check cord and having that flank collar. So I've gotten to the point where I can put a flank collar on them and they understand that when they feel pressure on their, their belly, that means plant their feet. Okay. So I want to have a low level pressure. I don't want it to be a high stimulation to where they understand plant your feet. So you're, you're trying to get a conditioned response out of them. So with that, um, I like to have control. So if I need to have it where I'm walking them out into the back pasture where I've got launchers or, you know, a situation like that, I might even have some birds in a bag and, um, I'll walk them out on that check cord and control the situation. They're not running. Well, then I can roll them to a stop with that check cord and that remote in my hand. Right. So I'm, you know, rolling them and then letting them stop because they've already learned to stop prior to that, that situation. And then once you feel that you can move forward and, and I've used other trainers thoughts where it's like 80% of the time they understand it, then you move forward to the next um, stage where, you know, it's without a check cord. Um, I will tell you this though. I've got certain dogs that all I have to do is teach them to stop in the yard Maybe I walk out, I bump them on the belly in a backfield. I have a bag of pigeons. I start tossing pigeons, shooting a blank pistol, stopping that dog, just like in that scenario. And then I take them to the field um, and I'm working them. And all I've got to do is use that break on them. That's, you know, that's that flank collar. It's a break. And all I've got to do is take that chase and they'll stop and they'll stand in that situation. That's it. And, and, but that's, that's the breeding side. A lot of it is, um, mm-hmm. and they're, they want to stand, but gosh, I've had about, I've worked, I think 15 dogs out of, um, one sire and almost every single one of them acted the same way around birds. And, um, and it's like, they're, they're really, um, they're bold enough and then you can stop them. And those are the dogs that I can take right to wild birds and I don't have to do a whole lot in the yard. Um, other dogs, you have to do prerequisites in order for them to have an understanding. Otherwise it's like getting the cart ahead of the horse. Um, so really knowing what you're working with and what that dog needs, that that's kind of your first and foremost, but, uh, being able to stop them without birds and then implementing stop, you know, flushing birds out in front where they don't even scent them and then stopping them and doing a number of those to where they understand that situation. And then you feel confident that, um, you put them into wild birds or other situations that you can stop them. Um, that's kind of the way you, you meander to it. And then eventually, um, you can sink your, your 
neck collar with your flank collar and then move to the neck only for non-compliance, right? So, like, okay, you went with the birds. I'm just going to bump you and stop you. Um, So, so that's kind of a, in a nutshell. Got it, man. No, very, very good stuff. That's, that's of a lot of interest to me at, at the stage I'm at with my younger dog. And I know Mm -hmm. some of the listeners as well, but all right, next question here. Mark says, here's a good one. What if you have a GSP so happy that it barks as it runs? Oh, I hate that. that I I hate barking. Okay. (laughs) Actually, uh, we're going to get into this. So, um, now you don't want to take the joy out of a dog. Um, Right. But uh, barking while running and hunting, that dog's actually not hunting. It's um, it's their mind clearing a lot of times. Um, there, there's field trials right now where dogs are getting placed and they're barking a majority of the half hour to hour on the ground. Wow. You can't tell me that's not genetic. And it's not it's not short hairs only. It's not, you know, it's, it's across the board. <laughs> and, um, and so... I mean, I get that a lot. Like now I've seen dogs um, bark while chasing birds. I've seen them bark while chasing Tweety birds, uh, game birds, you know, different situations, chasing deer or whatever. But you got to, you know, you you take that out of them, so to speak. You just, you um, you get rid of that behavior. And, uh, but yeah, you want them to be happy, but their joy of finding birds is they're, they're not running a track. They're not hunting, you know, fur. And even with uh, a lot of the hounds, what we called it was babbling. And my dad hated that with the hounds growing up. Oh, I mean, he, I remember him coming home and there's certain bloodlines that he was working and they were known to babble on the track instead of um, running a chop mouth on the track. And so that that's probably where it starts is like, it's been ingrained to me not to like that. And, um, but you know, it's, uh, you think about it, if they're racing through the country, they're probably not thinking birds like where they're just over, over speed, um, racing through it, or if they're barking while running, or if they're barking and chasing birds in the air, they're probably not trying to get them pointed either. So you got to be gradual with it, but then, um, certain behaviors, you have to bend them out of that. And so you can bend dogs out of barking while running, but you got to make them do something for you. You got to make them handle a lot of times, but I've seen a lot of it be genetic. And yeah, that's, that's a thing that's, that's kind of been a pet peeve lately of mine is like dogs barking on the ground or gosh, even uh, when we're in Texas, dogs barking on the truck. I do not handle that either. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Aesthetically, it's not as enjoyable, but yeah, it, it seems to kind of correlate with really a heightened sense of excitement or, mm-hmm. you know, like, and it's just like you said, the dog is, I mean, it, it's almost like that barking is like the spilling out of their excess energy that yes. they're just full tilt and they're not like they need to dial back they're not focused and they're not in the zone at that point. Absolutely. And and then that's, but some of them too, they do it for the first few minutes and then it just, they get it out of their system and then they're fine. Um, and I'm not, and after a while it just kind of dwindles, but if it's something that's constantly going on and I I've had it, um, there, there were some dogs that I worked, uh, last summer that would do it. And I just, you know what I would, a lot of the time I would turn them. I'd make them turn with me. Okay. So like if they were going to the front and they were 
you know, 150 yards in and they were yipping and barking and just trying to keep up with another dog on the ground, I would, um, I'd turn directions like 90 degrees and call on them and start kind of tickling them with that collar to get them to pay attention. And then they would come across to the front. Well, now their mind is focused on what I'm asking of them instead of just ripping through. Yeah, exactly. So typically when you do handling drills, um, and, and, and that can start even in the yard with the check cord and then it should with a lot of those dogs, um, you, uh, you can take it out of them without, um, having a bunch of scars on that dog. You don't just slam them with that collar unless you're, I mean, unless there's like an absolute reason. Um, but usually you start getting them to think and key off of you and they stop that stuff pretty quick, um, because they're refocused. Awesome, man. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Next question from AD. I have a dog with a ton of energy and a great nose, but she blows through coveys. Gets so amped up, she can't stand it. All I have are wild birds. How do I stop her and get her to actually point a bird? So we've maybe danced around a little bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, so that's the part with some of those dogs, depending on the age. Okay. So if we're talking a puppy, if we're talking like a year and younger or, a, you know, depending on the age and um, mental maturation of the dog, um, if you only have wild birds, and, and we know people that only have wild birds, they don't have, they really don't have access to have a loft or pigeons. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not even have anyone nearby that they know um, that can help with that sort of training. But get a condition response on that belly. And utilize that flank collar to slow them down and turn them and make them come and go with you off the neck and then use that belly to stop them. And I I know people are going to say, well, that's too mechanical. That's too many collars. Look, we're not doing this for their lifetime. We're doing this for a period of time to help them be efficient and productive. You know, it's just like us. Um, in athletics, there's certain things that we do in, in certain times of sports for fundamentals that help us enjoy that sport for a lifetime. It's the same thing for this dog. So when, I mean, where, I guess where you grew up, Nick, it might be hockey, right? So like there's certain things that you did growing up playing hockey, right? <laughs> and, and so they were the fundamentals and you learn to enjoy the fundamentals of the game. And then later in life, you still, embrace and enjoy the game because you have this fundamental knowledge of it. Well, essentially that's what you're doing with certain types of training and, and teaching a dog to stop is just that. Now there's some real barn burners out there that actually they become extremely productive because the handler makes them stop or the handler asks them to come and go with them. And once they realize, Oh, I'm working for you. I'm working for this man or this woman. Like I'm working for the man. Like, all right, I'm going to work my tail off for you. I like you. Okay, (laughs) cool. Um, And then they just, they, they start doing what's actually natural to them and they've got all this good energy. Well, they've got an engine now. And so at the end of the day, you're trying to take that energy and make it productive. And that's kind of, you know, the whole goal of it is we're all trying to get to the same spot, depending on what, like, you know, what we believe that the, the, the dog that we have, what we believe their genetics are, well, we're all trying to get to a pretty similar location. But how do we get there without putting a bunch of scars on them? How do we get there and to help them be productive without getting in their head? 
Cause that's, that's one of the big things I work with too is dogs that people have gotten in their head. And as a, a human athlete, um, or a student, think about like if you were browbeat by your teacher or, or your coach. Well, I, I mean, I'm not one of those people that does it well. So, um, I, I just, I like if these dogs are naturally to run and hunt and handle and we can just fine tune certain things, um, that's the best way to go, right? I don't want to be in their head. I want them to do what they're naturally supposed to do. Excellent, man. All right, next one up from Casey. I have a six-year-old wire-haired pointer. Early in the season, she holds points great, but as the season progresses, she starts to self-hunt. This has happened the past few years. What are some things I could do to have her hold point better later in the season? So kind of that regression that people will talk about. Yeah. So that's having that break, being able to stop that dog, okay, and turn them and make them come and go with you. To give you an insight, so down in Texas, these dogs have a lot of cubbies over them. And then the dogs that are on the truck, you know, within this, they're getting a lot of energy and excitement from it too, okay? So um, a couple of us talk about this all the time. We get to the late season, and they've had so many birds dropped over them. They're anticipating uh, the flush and birds dropping. And even if they don't retrieve, they want to be on that sucker. Like, they want to be on them, and it's, you know... It's just they're they're pulled in like a magnet, all right. Um, so, with that being said, having that break or being able to turn them, make them do what you need them to do. Um, it, all it does is it sets up a boundary, right? So if I have a boundary of you know what, I notice that you're you're kind of doing your own thing out here. Um, I'm going to turn you. I'm going to make you go a different direction. And then I'm going to bring you back into that pocket because I know there's probably birds in there, but you need to keep me in mind when we go in there. And that's just kind of almost resetting their mind. The other thing is you can just take a moment with them. Don't let them, don't let them go into that country. Take a moment, make them stand there. Maybe you just had a find or you just had, you know, an exciting time and that dog's mind is just going a mile a minute. Make them calm. A calm mind will be focused and calm them down. Get that teamwork back in order, and then and then go back to the country. Uh, that's kind of my, you know, it, some of that stuff is it's hard without seeing the dog and seeing the owner and how they handle them. But um, sure. but if you think about it, if if I set a boundary with a with them, and I I'm like, hey, I, I I notice that you're just you're reaching in there, and you're not you're not staying linked up to me, you're not staying hooked up. I'm gonna turn you, and I'm gonna make you come with me. And it doesn't mean to beat them with a collar. It means just you have that condition response, hopefully, with the neck, and you can turn them and make them come with you, and uh, and call on them if you have to, and and don't get frustrated. Try to keep your mind. It's a dog, um, and uh, and then just get them to come and work with you again and work for you because that teamwork um, it, it's it's critical. That's the memory right there. Got it. All right, next one up from Corey. Can training slash hunting a novice puppy with an experienced bird dog be beneficial and or harmful? So, okay. Beneficial and or harmful. Um, yeah, it's kind right? of a yes or no question. Yeah, but yeah. Yes, so, but yeah, it, it can. It can be beneficial and it can be harmful. Um, and, and so, okay, if I get some of these pups, uh, I'm not trying to broadcast a certain bloodline, but 
the stuff that I get out of uh, True Confidence, what I will do a lot of times with the young pups at the five, six, seven month old range, even all the way up to a year old, um, I will bring them in with a broke dog and let them come into a situation, right? You're, you're kind of, they have training wheels at that point. So uh, a broke dog's got a covey find. I'm, you know, bringing this young pup in. I'm just letting them do whatever they want to in that situation at first. And then we're gradually working to where, you know what? We just had that find. That pup came in and they backed. I walked out. I flushed. I shot. My broke dog's still standing. My pup went with the covey. And then I, you know, eventually that pup comes back and he works where that covey got up. Well, now I send him on and I am, I'm not shitting you. <laughs> um, more times than not, that pup is now so focused to go and find their own covey. Now I've mostly seen this out of the, the particular lines that I run, but, and I've seen it out of Jerry's stuff, but they are so in tune now to go find their own. Okay. And that's my hope is, okay, well, we just had training wheels on this find. Well, you know what? I want my own. I, I know what we're here for now. And so the light bulb comes on. Now I've also seen dogs that, that broke dog <clears throat> pulls them around in tow the whole time and they just back and they knock and chase and they get in these bad habits. So you have to be aware of where that dog is. So you're not forming bad habits because even that broke dog, they have a youngster come in and knock birds in front of them enough and, uh, they want to go with them. They're like, well, this, this dog gets to go and knock them. You know, why can't I? And then they start loosening up. Now, people will say, oh, that dog needs to be dead broke and yada, yada. It, it can unravel a dog enough times seeing that. Um, they'll start, you know, getting competitive. And that's, that's the thing that you have to be careful with if you're running a retrieving dog, uh, with a pointing dog too. Um, so it just, it can start bad habits. You, if you're in a, a moment where you have control, um, and you have that puppy on the ground or that youngster on the ground, um, just be aware, um, be aware of that dog and, and be honest with yourself. Where are they? Because where they are right now, you don't have to push them to be, you just have to let them develop rather than pushing them to develop. So they'll tell you. Good stuff, man. Moving on, man. Next question is from, this is a good one. It's a little bit of a long question. So if I need to uh, reread it or something. Let me know. But this is from Liz. Mm -hmm. And she is echoing a little bit of what a previous one, previous question about blowing up coveys. So asking about dogs in the habit of blowing up coveys and chasing instead of staying steady to wing. Mm -hmm. Tips on fixing that in a versatile dog with an otherwise great retrieving instinct and nose. Um, I'm going to leave it there. Yeah. So she she goes on to ask some other things but i will uh, i'll address that okay in the second part um so this is one of the things that i guess why i'm not so concerned on retrieving and, I, and i'll use this to preface so a lot of people they get a puppy and they're constantly working on retrieve 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 well what you're doing is you're um pulling more and more chase there's nothing wrong with chase as long as you're willing to stop them right so even with, uh, say, the pointers that we're working with, uh, with some of them, I build up more chase before I start steadying them up at a certain age so that I know uh, I'm not taking more out of them, okay? So I kind of look at this as a spectrum. So now we've got a dog that's got a wild hair and just loves to knock and chase a covey and just explode them. 
well, stop them. Make them stop. You don't get to do that anymore. After a while, I keep stopping you in those situations. You may get the idea of like, hey, point them. If you're exploding them, I'm going to stop you every time. And I'm not shooting a bird for you. Um, so when we reward them with that retrieve, because we're just, you know, shooting birds over them, because, you know, you think about it, they didn't point this cubby, maybe. They may have worked them, but then they just, you know, erupted them off the ground uh, and ripped them. Well, you don't, if I want you to be more steady, I don't let you keep doing that. Does that kind of answer you think, Nick? Or, yeah, that- yeah, it does. And I, I, I will throw in there that, you know, a lot of times we overcomplicate this stuff. And I'm not saying that Liz is doing that or the other people asking the questions, but I know for me personally, you know, I'll have a, have an encounter with a grouse or something and mm-hmm. maybe the dog doesn't do something just right. And then I'm sitting there asking myself like, well, what went wrong there? And, mm-hmm. you know, it might be as simple of, as simple as, you know, did I let the dog break or do something? And then did I reward that dog for doing that? And yep. what has, what has led us here? Now I, I've gotten certainly better about not rewarding the dogs for certain things, but when you're hunting, I mean, people we talk about this a lot. Like if you're a bird hunter and not necessarily a dog trainer, yeah. and it's hunting season and you got limited time out there. Like there's a pull on you to try to do certain things that don't always align exactly with dog training. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess that's the, the hardest part, right? If you're a hunter, it's kind of by all means necessary, right? In, in certain aspects with, with uh, yes. some of these versatile bred dogs, they are, I will tell you this, I like a versatile bred dog for being what they are, which originally was a killer. They were a killer. You know, a lot of these German bred dogs, that's what they were for. And there, there's something really special about that. Now, with that being said, there's a lot of things going on in that mind. And most of them, as they talk about it, Prey drive, prey drive, prey drive, and prey drive. Like, I want to build that up. Well, that's chase. That's want to hunt them down and kill them. Kind of at it. You know, that's, that's essentially what's going on. Um, the dogs that I get to work with, um, I would call a pointer or a setter, um, specifically, not discounting other breeds, but I would call them more, uh, of a finesse dog. And so your versatile bred dogs are really capable because of all the tools they have in their box. But what happens a lot of times is there's certain training that needs to happen in order to help that dog in those situations. And typically that dog doesn't get out or get worked in that, that scenario until we're in the hunting season. So what I would say is if you can back up a little bit and you can teach that dog what you want, well, then you can reinforce it out in the field. Um, and it, and it typically doesn't take a lot of times. I mean, if it's done right, you know, you do it once or twice and that dog's pretty responsive to it. Cool. All right. So this is the second part of Liz's question. And this is, it's related, but this is a good one because people were asking about this. And she, she kind of goes on to say, whoa, posts, whoa, tables, whoa, barrels. There seem to be a million ways to work on a dog's whoa. What is the difference between them? Pros and cons of each. So yep. give us your whoa theory. And then also before you dive into that, yeah. AD commented on that and he said what in the hell is woe in the first place nobody actually explains it so yeah. tell us what woe is and then how you work it so woe is plant your feet stop stand that's what it is that's all i'm yeah. stopping you i want you to stop woe and i'm gonna this is gonna be kind of brash woe means jack shit unless you can reinforce it okay 
you hear these people constantly, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, what are you doing? How, how are you reinforcing it? Because that dog keeps moving. Now, you'll hear me at times like squalling on it. I'm also hitting a button. Like, and, <laughs> and it, whoa, 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 kind of thing, right? And so it just depends on the scenario. Sometimes you're grabbing that emergency brake and the oh shit handle at the same time. And, um, yes. And so with that being said, woe is plant your feet. That is what everybody's saying. When I woe break a dog, I do this and this. Okay. All you're doing is asking that dog to stop. Okay. Stand still. So if we go back to certain trainers and different methods and stuff, um, like the Smith, I'm going to use this because I, I never really got into it until being around Sonny and a few others, but uh, the Smith fundamentals. Essentially, you're teaching a dog to stand still, okay, with using that, that pig and string there. And so you're, it's almost like a bit in a horse's mouth where you've got, um, you've got that around their neck. Well, they're keying off of very subtle movements with that string. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that you would be directing a horse with. And that's where the Smiths, I believe, took that concept and then uh, brought it to dogs. Well, you're still working with an animal that you're trying to get to work for you without leaving a bunch of scars on them. So teaching a dog to stand still, that's essentially whoa. Now, when you're watching all this stuff, how much does it take out of the dog to make them stand still? That's the question, all right? How much does it take out? When we look at these dogs and we see extreme if extreme intensity, right? We see extreme intensity around birds. Well, that intensity should be character. That should be them having so much wanting to go in and chase or wanting to set those birds up, but they know they they want to chase, but they want to set them up, right? And then after a while, there's certain dogs that break out easier to where all they want to do is suck in that scent the whole time. And then it's extreme character around those birds. It's keeping keeping those birds on the ground and sucking in that scent and doing it with extreme composure. That's our whole goal, in my opinion. But we see these dogs constantly that have been woe broke. And they just stand there and they're looking around and they're flagging their tail. And they, I mean, that's that's terrible. I don't care who you are. I don't care what the breed is. I mean, I see poodle pointers that come in with extreme intensity around birds and great character all the time. It doesn't matter the breed. If you take it out of that dog to where it's no longer the predator and prey, but you're in their head because you're woeing them and slamming them with that collar and doing all this. So it's a balance, right? But woe doesn't mean anything when you're teaching it if you can't reinforce it. And that's the stepping stone to make a dog stop or having a break on them. To where you can stop them in the situation. And if you don't believe in an electric collar, you'd have to find a different way. Uh, people did back in the day. And and you can still do it. But um, a lot of our dogs are bred now with the intention of using an electric collar to help them through certain processes. And that's communication. It's not frying them up with that collar. It's communicating at a level of stimulation that they understand. So essentially that's what we're doing with a barrel or we're doing with a post or we're doing anything else. We're putting control on them. I will tell you that I've seen certain things come from the way that Sonny does stuff and I've done it with a few young dogs and it is extremely easy to teach that dog to stop and stand still without taking a lot out of them. And so they've done their own thing. Now that's keying into the mind of the dog and getting them to work for the human. 
And I've really liked that. Now, I've also seen it, too, where the genetics are that dog naturally wants to stand birds. And all you're doing is kind of helping them. You're trying to weigh the option or the way where that dog is and how much pressure you have to. Because when you do woe, like or if you want to call it woe breaking or, or breaking a dog out, you're putting pressure on them. And so how much pressure do they need? And when do I let off? And those are things that you're trying to find. Um, but there's the woe post, the woe barrel, the tables. All they are are tools. They're a tool that the trainer or the person developing that dog feels comfortable using in that scenario. If they're just putting them through a meat grinder and they're saying, oh, well, every dog goes on this table, every dog does this, every dog does that. Well, some of them don't need it. So know your animal. And so there's certain foundational pieces that each dog needs, but some of them are actually past that because, honestly, genetics. And then other dogs just need it for a little bit, and then they skip ahead a, a bit because they are now it's put them to where they naturally want to do that, and they have an understanding. So all the woe breaking, all that stuff is is teaching a dog to plant their feet and stop and and to help them just be more composed and focused. That's the whole idea of it. Um, and it's just a tool. So hopefully I answered that. All right. Yeah. <laughs> knowing the, knowing the dog, knowing the animal, man. I mean, that's where, uh, somebody like yourself is, you're always going to be light years ahead of somebody like me. I've got two dogs, you know, and, but that's why we, we ask you the questions and we got to lean on people like you because we don't know how to read our animals like somebody like you. Well, you you do know your dogs extremely well. Don't don't ever You're right. cut yourself You're right. shot, shy of that. But there's certain things I think when they come in for training that I'm looking for out of their body language that's different than um, if it's like your kids in school, right? If your kids in school, the teacher might see certain things in a different type of um, stress load out of your your child than you might see. And it's the same thing with the dog. We're looking for certain body language um, that's telling us where they are and um, and then doing certain things that might explain where they are, not just hear it from the owner. But don't don't ever cut yourself short of knowing your animal because, um, right. you know, there might just be certain things that someone that gets to train a lot. Like I, I'm very fortunate I get to train full time. I, I, I don't um, overlook that any day. And so when I get to work with different animals, um, regardless of their age, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy learning something. Some of them frustrate the heck out of me. Some of my own dogs frustrate the heck out of me. But it's, um, and, and my friends and family get to listen to it um, about 24-7. But it's me thinking through the process of, okay, what's our next step here with this animal? Because it's not cookie cutter. It's not. It, it just isn't. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's just part of what we're doing. We're trying to help animals be productive. It's just uh, you know sometimes we it's the same thing people used to do with horses. So we're just doing less of it with horses now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, at least at least you can take comfort knowing that the people listening to this podcast are doing so at their own will, and they're not being forced to just listen to you <laughs> as, a, yes. as a family or or friend. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, All right, man. Next question. This is from Phil, and he wants to know, you kind of have maybe given us your opinion on some of this stuff in some of your previous answers, but mm -hmm. he wants to know your thoughts on the 
watering down of wild bird dogs. And then he's got kind of a second part. Um, and I, I asked him to clarify what he meant by watering down. And he kind of explained. Oh, he knows I'm reading dogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he knows, you know. Yeah. So um, you take it away. <laughs> so this is uh, Filthy Phil. I believe. Um, so, um, this is a discussion that I've had with a lot of people. Um, okay. Our hunt tests and our field trials have changed. Okay. When they are changing, they are becoming almost an exhibit or, um, a demonstration, so to speak. Right. Um, it's not to just take away from anyone, but we have very few wild bird trials in the country. Okay. With fewer and fewer wild bird trials, that means that the stock of wild bird dogs and perform consistent performances around wild birds is less. So with that, we've got more abilities with, as trainers with collars and manipulation of that animal. What is very difficult for us to see in this day and age is what's real and what's not. Okay, and this kind of goes back to where I said about your, you know, when you, when you, Go to pick up a puppy and this person is broadcasting, oh, the best bloodlines in the country or this or that. To me, that's red flags popping up. And, and if I have a litter of pups, they're actually not for the public. They're for me. I'm breeding because I want to have something out of these dogs to work. Okay. If, if someone's breeding just for the public and they're not working their dogs, that's a huge red flag. Okay. So that's, this is what I'm going on now. If someone is broadcasting that they've got the best bloodlines in the country, well, you better question it. You darn well better question it because they might have them, but what if they don't actually work their dogs? Sure. Right? What if they don't know their dogs? What if they're just breeding this stud dog that they own, that they made him a stud dog, and they're saying, oh, yeah, he's throwing these pups and this and this. Well, then it's ego-focused. You know, it's on them. It's really like, oh, that's my dog, you know? You could go out and buy the best bloodlines, but then it's, what do you do with them, right? Right, right. And so in two generations, you can have a completely different animal, completely different animal. Interesting. And, and we're talking two generations. And then it takes five, six to get it back. Mm. I, I know this because I <laughs> I was born with it. This is, my father started with, <laughs> with English coonhounds, and he was winning championships when he got home from Vietnam back in the 70s and 80s. Like he was flat out winning against walkers and anything else that was really out there. And, and we're talking some of these championships pulled in 50 to 100 dogs and they would go for a week plus. And those dogs went night after night. He told me, I said, why'd you ever switch from English to, uh, to walkers? He said, I couldn't get the type of dog I needed in order to win. So what he was saying was they weren't breeding the same type of dog anymore outside of what I was trying to do. So his last litter of English hounds, he had three night hunt champions out of that litter, out of one litter. So th they might have been the only ones that got the chance to be champions. You see, what, like, so you have to have a chance. You have to have the right genetics. And so my whole scenario is just because a dog hunts doesn't mean it's a wild bird dog. Okay. So they have to show certain types of genetic characteristics of going through the country, handling for that handler, finding and pointing and setting up game. That's the whole concept. You run to the front, you hunt objectives, 
You find birds, you point them. You set it to where when I get in this situation, I have a shot to flush and kill that bird for you. Okay, now we've got a scenario where, okay, a dog doesn't naturally want to point. It runs around, and I made him point. I made him stand there. And he shows, and you show up, and he's flagging, or he tightens up because he's done so much board work that now he's tightened up. Okay, well, the judge just saw that dog real high and tight, and that that handler's out in front of him, shushing him, you know, and tightening him up. And then that dog ends up having another find. Or maybe he just wins on a race and a find. Well, that dog gets bred. That breeds forward. And because they have a certain gait, they have a certain lick going through that country, they really tear through it, they're fast on the ground, they're winning, and they get bred. So now if we come to a hunter, or from my perspective down in Texas, i got to have a wild bird dog. If I have dogs that I constantly have to make into a dog, I constantly have to redirect their focus to be on birds and to go into the country seeking birds, I don't have a wild bird dog anymore. I have a man-made dog. And so I'm going to I'm going to compliment you on this, Nick. If you're going to go to if you're going to go to a breeder, Jerry Coulter has created his kennel and his foundation on bird dogs to bird dogs. That is the whole foundation of it. And so back in the day when we had more wild birds, and I know this is going to be the excuse that people will throw at me, we had more wild birds, we made wild bird dogs. Well, that's fair, right? Wild bird dog to wild bird dog. That's the breeding. And every once in a while, I can pull something from outside my kennel because I need something slightly different. I need a little piece to add into this. And I know that dog possesses it because I've watched that dog 20 times and I've watched them in all these different scenarios and I've been analyzing them. And, and that's the methodical part that you have to go to with a breeder. The, the, I constantly see these breeders just getting frozen semen on dogs that were big name dogs and they just throw it in any female and say, Oh yeah, these are the best things out there. And, and these dogs look tall and proud and they're beautiful, but do they have what you're looking for? Do they hold up? Do they run the country appropriately? And, and that's the side of it. I, I have bred, we bred a dog this year that in my opinion, isn't the best, um, the most attractive confirmation. He's in my opinion, he's not necessarily the most attractive confirmation, but what he has between his ears, his, his ability around game continued to build until his body started to give. And that was at eight and a half years old, his body started to give. And he's got a lot of miles on him. Well, that's eight and a half years of mental growth. That, to me, outweighs any confirmation of a dog that might be, you know, plateaued by three years old. And the the simple fact that he's nine years old now and he's still physically holding up means his confirmation is good enough. So right. they, there's a lot of things going on in this world right now. And there's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And, um, I mean, it, it's just... Uh, this is something I guess I'm pretty passionate. I'm not out there trying to sell dogs. I'm trying to breed what I need. And I, I work with specific people because the integrity of that person. And that's when you're going and you're buying pups or you're buying dogs, you're not buying, you're buying from the person. You're not just buying a pedigree or a bloodline. You are buying from the integrity of the person producing that litter. And that to me is a big deal.
because they have put thought and effort into that litter, they also better be keeping something out of it to evaluate it at a high level. Not just breed it, but evaluate it. Is this the quality that I want to continue with? Is this the type of animal that I want to continue with? Because type and bloodline are completely different things. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that's a part I get caught up on quite a bit. So Your passion is on display, man, but I... I know I appreciate it, and I, I know I'm not the only one. So uh, that was that was excellent stuff. That, one of those things that people throw throw out a lot is find a breeder that you like, trust, kind of know them. I mean, it's it gets said over and over again, but you're really like kind of hitting the nail on the head. There is like the importance of how well do you really know your breeder? How well do you really know what he or she does and how they work their dogs and develop them? And and how much do you align with their thinking and methodology? That's that's good stuff. Yeah, appreciate it. All right, man. Next one up from Tyler. We're, we're going to retread a little bit of familiar ground here, but he gave some info and kind of asked in a different way. So I'm ready to steady my GSP to shot. Mm-hmm. He is already steady to wing, but only on his own instinct. Yep. What woe training should I start with? Mm-hmm. And then he says, I already say woe while he is on point. He knows what it means because I can stop him with a woe if he's tracking a bird or really any time he's not too amped up or distracted. So that last line is kind of a little telling for you there. Think, yeah, Ryan. yeah. Well, the simple fact, and this is a great thing. I'm, I'm going to kind of back up here. Uh, I talked to um, Rooster uh, Levens about this recently, and, and Rooster's been a short hair guy for a long time. But short hairs are, you know, mark my word on this, don't. Don't say that I am um, breed uh, that I hate on every breed, but um, <laughs> short hairs are really known for coming out of a box and being able to kill birds over. I mean, they are they hunt. That is what they've been known for, and um, there's something great about that. And the simple fact that this dog is to that point where it is finding pointing birds and letting you get in the situation and kill them a bird. That's that's a whole package, right? So for for a typical hunter, now you want to you want to steady them up even more. Well, that's great. That's the real test of it because all the prerequisites are in order naturally. So what I would say is instead of saying woe to the dog and giving them a handicap, teach them or get a conditioned response of being able to stop them. Okay. Uh, with stimulation. Okay. From there, when those birds go to flight, you got to have some scenarios where you're not tr- trying to kill birds for them, but you're, in that situation and you can just stop them. You flush those birds for them and you can just stop them on that collar rather than talking on whoop, 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 that sort of thing. Instead of that handicap, just stop them and, and go from there and keep them in that situation. Don't let them out of that situation. In fact, what happens a lot of times when you steady up a dog to where you can stop them in that situation, you ought to believe like you should see what they do once you turn them loose to go on. The mind is typically so focused and collected that when you finally release them, say it's, you know, 20, 30 seconds later, you might send them with a whistle. You might send them with your voice. You might tap them on the head to send them forward. The amount of, of, um, aggressiveness to the country to seek and find birds again, it's, it's awesome. And so with that, you, you, you probably get a better bird dog in my opinion, um, just based on the majority of what I see, uh, if you can stop them with minimal, um, resistance, um, they'll just stay focused on the task 
And so that's what I would say for the next step. And and that also depends on the age. If we're talking like a, a six month old dog, you know, and, and there's some of them that are six months old, fine and appointing birds at that level. Um, I'd probably wait a little longer. Um, I, I don't sure. believe in breaking out a, a puppy, um, a year old, year and a half, two years old, you know, in that range, um, depending on where they are mentally is, is a better way. So, cool. Next question from Adam. What is a good method for training an older dog, a year old or older, the recall command if it wasn't implemented early? Okay. Um, This has been a big thing that a lot of people that have control issues struggle with. Um, And I say this is constant recall. I don't actually teach a dog to necessarily recall. The problem is um, when I, if they use an e-collar and use stimulation and they're doing that, well, what if I bump you to turn you because you're going back on me and you come into me, right? So that's, and, and so actually, um, you, I would use a check cord, you know, and use that and just kind of, you're, you're using like slight twitches on the neck and getting them to come in. I mean, you could treat them. I don't do that at all. Um, but I'm more, mostly looking for that dog to come and go with me as far as, um, turning them and making them go to the front. That dog should always be going forward with me. And so when I do that, then the next step is, all right, I'm going to ask you to come in and I can reinforce with the stimulation of a collar. But you start with that check cord of, you know, maybe you kneel down or maybe you you call them in and you stay on it. And then after a while, you just talk to them. It's communication. And and the reason I, I, I say that I don't really do a lot of recall specific I don't know the last time I necessarily taught it without just focusing on the dog's pattern and that dog going with me. So it was more so that dog going with me and they're keying off of me and focused on me and my direction of turning and going forward. And then after a while, I I stop and I call them in. And for some reason, I just want to come in. They see you standing there still. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that actually comes back to the Smith method of like with that pig and string and that command lead of standing still. Well, why is dad standing still? Why is my handler standing still? Okay. And oh, he's calling for me. He's saying my name. Oh, okay. And then they just come in. And, and so I can't say specifically, I'm like, you got to come here kind of thing. <laughs> it's mostly just, it's that relationship. You're kind of flowing and dancing out there in the country and uh, after a while, it doesn't look like you're putting any effort in and you call on that dog and they just, you, they know you're asking them to come in or you're sending them through the country and you're turning them. They understand the situation. Whenever you're doing this stuff, you're, you're preparing for environmental situations. And so that's what the yard work is. And then you transition it. Now you can overdo yard work and you can really sour a dog. And then, and if people are really, um, overly type a with them they don't give them any leeway and you got to be careful with that stuff so hopefully yeah. that helps um but that just makes a lot of i would start with a check cord you know and just kind of twitching it and, and and you know you're also doing that check cord to kind of get them to turn and go with you too and key off yeah. of you so okay he also asked it was kind of a second question he said how to actively correct a dog during a hunt or training session that has caught and developed a habit of catching pen-raised birds. Yeah. So that's that breaking out process and making them stand, and you can stop them um, with a collar. 
um, they understand their role in that situation. Yeah. And, and that's a bad habit when dogs start catching birds to stop them, you can make a monster out of them, but that's part of the training. You're, you're doing a different type of compliancy. And so repetition is a big deal. Um, and not taking too much out of them, but showing them what your expectation is. So, you know, bird takes flight and barely goes anywhere. You're training. You're not hunting at this point. You're training. Understand this situation. I'm going to stop you. And, uh, instead of let you go with them and catch them. So, and, and there's some situations there with the pen raised birds that can get extremely dangerous. We've seen it even with wild birds. Um, we've had dogs get, well, down on the Mariposa, we had a dog get shot this year. First time, I think, in probably 10, 15 years. I don't know. If, I, I've never heard of another time dogs getting shot. I'm sure they have. But dog or birds were between hunter and the dog. And uh, and then birds were beyond that dog. It was kind of in the middle of a feeding covey. And uh, dog was shot. So I, with this, be aware. You're, you're training to keep your, your partner, your hunting partner here, safe. So if you, you need to have a break on them, do it or don't put them in that situation. Wow. So uh, make sure you're practicing that and, and you have confidence that you can stop them in a situation that is harmful for them. Would you say, and, and in, say if, if a dog has a habit of catching these birds, like the next time you go out and train, you might need to have as much control as having a check cord on that dog so you can physically 100% stop him from going after that bird. Yeah. Um, especially it, it depends on the dog, but yeah, uh, I've seen trainers put like four, four collars on a dog. I mean, like with a pinch collar, like a dog was dragging a check cord. It was yeah. just so much animal wanting to chase. And so you might have to go to that and then you gradually trim yourself back, but make sure you set up situations in training and you have confidence in, where that animal is because it can be developed. It's it, all it is, is teaching and they're all going to come in a different situation, but if they get in a bad habit, um, now you've got a, it, it's like, it's like a human that gets in a bad habit. Say like, you know, we start say smoking, right? Well, now we've got to redirect our whole lifestyle and our mental state to veer away from it because we want to quit smoking. Well, I don't want you to be catching birds on the ground, even though they're not getting off the ground much. I've got to redirect your mind to where you understand any bird takes flight, stand or stay there. Don't go into that situation. Don't get yourself in harm's way. Don't be catching these birds and then I'll release you. So it, it is control. Yeah. Hopefully that helps. Cool. All right. This one, next one is from Corey. I just got a well-bred dog who's pointing everything that he sees. He's five and totally ignorant, knows nothing. I train obedience dogs, so that's where I'm inclined to start. Where would you start? And then he adds, my goals with him are NSTRA and a super steady field dog. What, what's NSTRA? Uh, NASTRA, NSTRA. Oh, 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 it's NASTRA. I think, I sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought you said a G in there. Okay. Um... He's pointing everything. Yeah, I just got a well-bred dog who's pointing everything that he sees. He's five and totally ignorant, knows nothing. Okay. Um, gosh, that's a hard thing without seeing the dog. Um, and yeah. not to neglect the, to answer it properly, I don't know that I could do justice to answering that without seeing the animal. But what I would say, if he's pointing everything, and we're talking like butterflies, 
grasshoppers, stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. what's popping in my head. Um, yeah, yeah. Y- you got to get him on the real thing. You get him on the real thing and let him let him kind of chase a bit and then build from there. They do. They need to have chase first and foremost. I mean, we know this with our puppies. They need to have chase, and some need it more than others. So in this scenario, you got to let that dog be a dog a little bit and then gradually refine him to being a steadied animal. But um, if he's five years old, it's pretty hard. Uh, a lot of windows close. I'm not saying it can't be done. I've, I've actually seen it get done. Uh, but you got to have a lot of exposure, proper exposure, letting them chase, letting them have fun, make it enjoyable, and then go from there. But if they're pointing everything, you got to get them to kind of unravel a little bit and go in and chase and let them have their joy to the whole process. One other thing, just to kind of clarify there, I think you answered that well, and actually you understood it a little bit better than me, but he also said, I train obedience dogs. So that's where I'm inclined to start as it relates to knowing that you've got a dog that's a little bit later in life and you're wanting to build that drive and chase. Would you be hesitant or anything like with too much obedience or anything of that nature? Like your primary focus would be letting that dog have fun and chase stuff. Yeah, you'd have to change your parameters of obedience with them. Um, You know, a lot of these people teach a dog to sit. Like, that's obedient. A dog just standing still in a situation is obedience to me. Just like standing and and being content in and around in a certain environment. And so you can take the wind out of their sails completely by nailing something down to where they're always wanting to please you, right? You ever get around those dogs that, they're taught to sit so much they come in near you and they just plop their butt down because they think that's what you want from them and then i have to unravel that constantly and so yeah i i'm one of those people i don't believe in teaching a dog to sit and that's just if they want to sit down because um they're in an environment where they can that's one thing they want to lay down because they're in that same thing but just stand still and then know when and where to to put pressure and when to let them have their head in that situation. But, um, I'd be apprehensive to, um, give them any more pressure or commands at that point. So, yeah, got it. All right. So the next one, I'm going to combine these two cause they're pretty similar is from Ryan and Amanda. And they are both asking essentially when developing a dog, what are some signs you're looking for in the dog that tells you it's time to start, breaking the dog yeah um that's that's a wonderful question i like that one um so i kind of i want to go back on a story i I remember um i just moved out west uh 2015 i think i moved back out west i should say and i moved to the treasure valley and i was working with a guy that was a really good amateur field trialer like really good he'd qualified a dog i think five years in a row for the national out here and um and he was a wild bird guy. I mean, I'd watch him work a dog from a horse. He did not work a dog from a check cord. He didn't do any of this other stuff. And he, you know what he could do with some of these dogs is he could stop them on the neck just by kind of tickling them in that situation. Not slamming them with that collar, but tickling them. And it was very kind of old school. And I, and I took a lot from it. And I, I had this young dog. And it was a, a true confidence bred female. Um it, and she started pointing birds for like three, four, five minutes on coveys and just keeping them on the ground. And she'd go through an hour in his training grounds. She'd have five, six finds in an hour. 
And he says to me the one day, he's like, why do you keep waiting to break her out? I said, well, she's only, you know, like 15 months or 14 months mm-hmm. old. And he says, yeah, she's telling you what she needs help with right now. She needs to be steadied up. And so those signs of her going to birds while handling for me and pointing birds, letting me get off of a horse and flush those birds and shoot. Now it's okay. We're doing that efficiently. Now we just make you not chase. So then, you know, you do the condition response on the flank and you may have already done this. You know, you, you may have started at nine months old of just teaching it in the yard of when I have that flank collar on you and I tickle you on the belly, stop. Um, and then that's how you, now our focus is, well, you don't get to chase anymore. So I guess what I'm looking for is handle. So you're going with me through the country. You're going to birds consistently. Okay. Every time on the ground, you're going to birds. You might get some of them pointed. You might knock some of them, but you're going to them. Well, that's a big deal right there. You can't be productive if you don't go to birds. And, and now I'm just helping you. I'm just giving you a little bit of help. So I'm just helping you steady. And that, and that's not, that's actually one of the best case scenarios is like we get to that point where we're already hunting. I can kill birds over you. Now I just want to take it to the next level. So that's that whole condition response on the flank, making them stop. And I, I like the flank. Um, I know lots of trainers that don't do the flank. I, I've had to, with a few dogs, not do the flank because um, they were better off on the neck. But um, And I've had some dogs that, you know, kind of vice versa, like, you know, they were Typically, they were originally shown on the neck, and they were actually pretty sour from the neck. So you teach them on the flank, and uh, and they they could kind of redirect the stimulus. Mm. So, um, and they just understood what you were asking of them. So hopefully, that helps. Yeah, that's good. I'm gonna throw in one little clarifying question there, just to kind of get one uh-huh. more example out of you. And so, let's say we've got a dog that's kind of handling for us. It's going to a bird and finding it. And I'm curious what a dog might be doing with a bird that would lead you to say not quite ready yet. And I'm wondering like if you see a dog that kind of is nosing its way into a bird, but eventually bumps it and they're doing that more often than that, they're not pointing and confidently holding that dog not ready yet. Yeah. So, um, okay. That might, this is uh, something that I think with some dogs is they actually aren't bold enough to go up. I call it getting in the grill, right? Going to them and getting in the yeah. grill, boring into those birds. Dogs that actually point back. Okay. So, um, and I've got, I've got a friend that has a really nice young dog and, um, and he's, he's breaking him out, but he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, doing it with a certain, um, certain finesse. We'll say it that way. So he's allowing the dog to have its head. And if he, if he goes in on the birds, that's okay. Um, if he does certain things, that's okay. He's not reprimanded him for it. Um, so w- with some of these dogs, and I've seen it where they start fear pointing birds, where they come into the situation and they, they're almost confused. They're like, oh, I know the birds are here, but they're not on them yet. So that's why when we're doing this, you take the chase on the flight of the birds, Okay. So think of the whole scenario. If the dog's not up into the birds yet, well, they're too far back. So you give them their head to allow them to 
figure that out, figure out how far away they can point them and keep them on the ground. Um, and then, and they've got to gauge them. So they need to knock some birds and they need to figure out that whole situation. And, and, and the best way to look at this is stopping a dog on the flank is not really a consequence. All you're doing is asking them to not chase. Mm-hmm. It's communication. So a lot of people look at stimulation as a consequence. It, it's only a consequence in a, a non-compliance of certain situations. We can always go up, but we want to stay lower. So uh, this particular dog, um, you could whistle them through it, you know, move them up into the birds, let them know, hey, if you punch them, it's okay. But get up into them, bore into that scent. And don't be cautious about this because I've seen a lot of cautious dogs too. And that is from pressure being put on them at the wrong time. But there's others that are cautious because it's naturally. So you got to let them have their head a little bit to be bold in that scenario. Yeah. And that would be, that's probably one of the biggest scenario or biggest things of um, your question on that, of an offshoot of when are they telling you they're not quite ready? Um, I had a young dog that I actually, I let him get rowdy around birds this year because I knew what he genetically was. And, um, and it was a young dog. Well, what actually helped him were uh, late season running birds in South Texas. Cause he was a good bird dog and he'd find birds nearly every time on the ground and uh, birds were running on him. Well, it'd piss him off. And he was a dog that wanted to point him. Like he'd come in and he'd swap in and point him early. Well, they almost pulled him forward. They pulled him in more to where he had to get more aggressive and he was frustrated. Well, that made him want to go in on him. Well, after a while that actually helps him go in and say, you're not getting away from me. I'm going to keep you here. And, and learn from those birds. So that would be my, my case of letting the dog tell you when they're ready. Um, if they're standing back and pointing those birds in, in they might have the tendency to get too cautious around them. So you got to have that balance of, yeah. of where they're at. So that's excellent. I, I you just kind of clarified something for me that I've been wrestling with a little bit. I've got this dog. She'll be a a year old in May. So she's getting close, but she had a really good first season. She's got a lot of experience. And I've been wondering, we, I had her out running this spring and she's, I mean, she's doing some things where she's pointing, tracking, trailing, relocating, and like getting some really nice finds and some really nice points, but then mm-hmm. she wants to move and stay with birds a lot and she's still yeah. bumping them. And yeah. I, I was hesitant to, you know, cause if before the bird gets up, you don't exactly know, is, is this a, right. is this a rabbit? Is what is this? What's going yeah. on? So I'm not wanting to interfere and I'm wanting to give the dog its head. And you just kind of pulled me out of that and gave me the perspective. Like we, like we start with, once the bird is in the air, that's when yeah. we're going to take the chase out. And then that leaves all the decision-making. It simplifies it. It takes everything out of my head. I don't have to worry until that grouse is in the air, whether she yeah. put it up or not. That's what, that's where I start training. Exactly. Yeah. And so for the longest time, and, and it can be different. I will tell you this. It can be different sure. with a Penray's dog to a certain degree because um, the Penray's dogs, they're, they're, it's a different type of, if you want to call it compliancy, um, those wild birds don't want to be caught, right? Yeah. Penray's bird doesn't have that type of ability of, um, of, of awareness most of the time. Some are different, no doubt about it, but, um, 
Yeah, it's it's a lot different. Now, I've, I've seen this too um, to kind of go into that where certain dogs have been allowed to, like young dogs, they've gotten in really sloppy habits. Okay. And it's not the actual natural tendency of the dog, but what happens is the, the owner might work them on wild birds or it might be a hunter. And so think about rough grouse, right? Well, that dog or that bird might give that dog the slip and it might fly and, you know, 200 yards and sit down in the, in the country. Well, now that young dog's like, you know what? I get a second chance at that sucker. I'm going to go right towards where I heard him go and I'm going to go hunt him and I'm going to work him. Well, what happens is sometimes they come in and they're not focused. They're not ready to go for this new setup. Mm-hmm. And so that bird's hit and he might be running or moving. And that dog comes in and it points where that bird hit. And now it's feathering it and trying to work it. And it's actually getting sloppy because it's hustling real hard. It's breathing real heavy. It's, its mind has already released. It's released its focus because it's been allowed to run after that. So what I try to say is when we're stopping that dog, it's actually reiterating the mind to focus. You only get one chance. I'm not letting you go after him again. Not on this go. We're going to redirect it. We're going to reset up here. You don't get to keep just going after him and after him and chasing him because you're going to chase him off the end of the the earth. And you're not going to keep – it's going to get sloppier. So what we're trying to do is – Let's redirect our, our mental focus here, and then we might swing a different direction and then cut across the area where we think that bird settled in. And uh, and they might be there. They might not. You might point another bird. But that, that redirection of the mind of not allowing them to just clear their mind and release it but stay in that moment, that's the focus. That's great, man. Excellent stuff there. Amanda had one little follow-up that I'll throw in here, and she was, as we're talking about steadying up dogs, younger, you know, year and a half old dogs, setting them up. Yeah. What do you look for to make sure? And I feel like you've weaved this in throughout most of our conversation. But what do you what do you look for to make sure the dog stays driven and enthusiastic throughout that pressure of training? So, you know that that's knowing the animal. Um, yeah. Some of these dogs need to have birds killed for them. You know, like you, and you might have to let them release on the shot. And then the next workout, <clears throat> you know, you, you go back to tightening them up again, but you're, you're, so don't take all the gas out of their tank, I guess is what I'm saying is you got to read that dog and not say, oh, well, I've got to go by this training book and, and exactly what it says. Well, it's giving you the whole layout because this is what the person that put this book together or, or that put this program together says, but I guarantee a lot of those really good trainers, um, it's a finesse. I mean, they're, they're phenomenal at it. So you got to read that dog and, and think about this, right? So like if I'm, if I'm not a trainer, if I'm just an owner and I like to work my dogs, I want to get to know them. Right. I want to, I intimately want to get to know what their personality is because they're, you know, they're my joy. That's my release from work, from everyday life. So if I'm just thinking, oh, I got to train them like a machine, well, where the heck's the fun in that? So if that gives perspective, like learn that dog and know what makes them tick. Maybe it's like, hey, you know what? Instead of training today, we just go play ball. 
Like we just, or we hang out or we go to a brewery and we, we, you hang out underneath the picnic table or we go for a walk in the park. We get out of training set mindset. And so dogs can get sour from overtraining, just like people. And so knowing that animal and knowing what makes them tick, when you can implement a little more gas into their tank, um, when you need to actually let them revert just a hair and then tighten them back up, that's another part to it as well. And that's that's knowing that animal. Hopefully I hit that one. <laughs> no, that's good. And, and you just hit you hit another one here that was sent in by Joe asking for tips for new owners, people that are not trainers to look into the dog's mind. And I think we've just, you've been hammering that just, you know, you want to know your dog as well as you can, and you will because you spend yeah. more time around it than anybody else. So kind of trust yourself, trust yourself that you know yeah. what that dog is thinking and and how it feels in that moment. And you'll, you'll pick up on when it, when it's apprehensive or when it's focused or when it's not, I mean, those, those little things kind of show themselves to you. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and look at this as, you know what? This is if if I'm if I'm 30 years old, right? Uh, I'm a little older than that now, but if I'm 30 years yeah, old and <laughs> and we're getting into bird dogs and we're we're geeking out over them, but it's like this is a 50 year endeavor. I, I mean, that's what I want to be able to have. I, honestly, I want to be able to have pointers when I'm 85 years old. You know, I, I want to have something that gets me up in the morning. That even if it's just one or two dogs when I'm that age, I want to have something that I enjoy. They don't need to be the best in the world at that point, but I darn well better enjoy them and my time with them. That's the whole purpose of having a bird dog or a dog in general. You enjoy each other. So, yeah. All right. Here's kind of an interesting one. This will just be maybe you've heard it or not, but have you ever <laughs> heard of a problem with a training caller? rubbing on the charging metal of another collar, such as a GPS collar, name collar, and incidentally stimulating the dog unintentionally. Uh, she, she doesn't think it could happen, but her friend says it could. Um, so I'm notorious. Well, I was notorious for running uh, a tracking collar and uh, an e-collar on the neck of a dog. The collar that was in between was um, the normal nameplate collar. I never, I would always run the tracking collar at the base of the neck. Um, and then, uh, like towards the shoulders. And then, um, the e collar would be up tucked underneath the neck. Sure. Uh, near the jaw. So, um, I've never had any of that. And I mean, shoot, there's certain times we had to put a couple dogs, I had to put two e collars on the neck and one on the flank. I mean, I, you know, people would say, what the heck are you doing with that animal? Well, it's kind of what they need at this moment, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> That was a certain type of dog, um, mainly Brooke. Um, <laughs> she needed that, but um, I've not heard that. I'm, I can't say that it can't happen. Um, right. But we've also, I've actually heard of um, certain areas on the Mariposa where, you know, we've got a lot of power lines down in Texas and we have a power line on our ranch that runs all the way down to Mexico, but we, that's in a bunch of our pastures. And some of the guys have said, yeah, the e-collar um, with electricity, uh, or no, I'm sorry, uh, the, the tracking collar and e-collar combination, they've had it where dogs have gotten shocked when it's been raining underneath those um, uh, power lines. 
<laughs> so I mean, that's a you know perfect storm probably, but um, sure. yeah. yeah, they they've they've recollected it, and um, I don't know. I've never been in that situation, so. Yeah. Um, but I go through e-collar stuff a lot and I analyze it and yeah, there's a, Enough. there's a lot to in it. In that so. regard, I would just throw in that. Yeah. I think you, you nailed it in that, you know, of course you can never say never, but I would say get yourself a good e-collar from yeah. say Garmin or one of the, you know, one of the select few that are very well known, very reputable. Don't go on Amazon and get an e-collar and expect that kind of stuff not to happen because yeah. that your odds of a, of an incident like that are going to be higher unless you're getting something from Garmin or one of the other ones. Yeah, the the three main brands. Well, I guess there's a fourth, but um, the three main brands being um, Garmin, Tritronics, uh, and Dogtra's got. I think Dogtra probably has one of the best e-collar sides to yeah. it. Um, and, and I'm not just saying that like. They're, they're, uh, the e-collar in particular is excellent on those, um, when I've used them. Um, and then, uh, Sport Dog, uh, and Sport Dog does a great job. They, they, they have a lot of stuff that is uh, financially affordable for people, but, and then they've got a lot of options. Um, and then I think DT Systems is still making some stuff. So just kind of depends on what suits you, but, you know, if you want the combination, I, I like the Garmin stuff for the combo, but I, you know, it all works if you take care of it properly. Yeah. Yes. All right. A couple more here, buddy, mm-hmm. and we're going to wrap up. Uh, this okay. one is from Ian. He says, not necessarily a question, but I'd like to know the top three things to work on this summer with my seven month old Brit. And then he's got another question, but all right. So you got a seven month old dog. What are you looking at, Ryan? I mean, you pretty much have kind of made it clear, like every dog is yeah. different, so you got to pay attention to that dog. But what might you be thinking about? So it depends on where the dog's at, if it's had any exposure. Um, but birds and guns need to be behind you, okay? And teach yep. them to go with you. You know, you guys are buds. Come and go with me. Um, and those three things right there, just uh, collar conditioning with the birds and guns. And now we... We go and we get exposure and experience in the woods or wherever you're at. And, um, and so those are, that's kind of the combination right there. Um, a lot of my pups start out like that and then we go forward and let them get into situations and find and hopefully point some birds. And then I get in there and you point it, I kill it. That's the game. So, um, that's what I would say for the prerequisites for the, the animal. Cool. And he also asked for, I guess, so I suppose if it's a seven month old dog today, it probably didn't have much of a season last mm-hmm. fall. So this may be its first season upcoming. He said yep. he's in Southern Idaho and mm-hmm. plans to get exposure on trucker and hunts, public land, pheasants on private land, yep. top three things to focus on during hunting season. Well, if he's in Southern Idaho, he might want to look you up and maybe come see you and you could look at this seven month old Brit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And the big thing out here is exposure to the country because it's sure. pretty big. And, and, and then the dogs need to get used to being in on these slopes and, um, and, and understanding where water is and how to get in and out of it and find springs on these hillsides. Um, you know, not just because a lot of times birds will be near them, but because they need to get in there and wallow in there and, and cool themselves off and things of the sort. So it's all learning process. Um, and depending on how many dogs he's had, um, 
and I don't, I'm not trying to, you know, finagle that, but, um, and depend on his experience with it, getting that boot leather in. That's the biggest part is a lot of people put a dog on the ground and they, they swear it's a machine. And we see these trainers out there and, you know, kind of darn them because they act like a dog's a machine and it's not, it's a dog. And it's like, stop calling them a machine, a bird finding machine. Dogs have their days, right? The biggest thing that we can do for them is not put that stimulant or like that pressure on them of, oh yeah, that dog's a machine. He can just go. No, you got to help them out along the way. So you learning the country, learning where you're hunting, learning the terrain, gosh, that's going to not just save you, but it's also going to make it more enjoyable. You're going to have, you can help them in certain ways and then you can give them their head. And, uh, but it's going to pull things full circle. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Here's one from Chris. Any tips on training a setter? and flushing golden retriever together. He's got a three-year-old male golden that does very well on pheasants and quail. Mm -hmm. He's got a deposit on a Llewellyn pup looking for more dog power and to hunt prairie grouse. So he's looking ahead here. Golden does a good job of staying within range and is an excellent retriever. Want to hunt them separate and together depending on the hunt. Any advice you got, Ryan? Yeah. Uh, Make sure you've got a handle on that golden. It sounds like you've got a really good start with them um, as far as uh, what they're doing and their job. So make sure that you can put them at heel because you're when you're combining them, you're actually giving them slightly different jobs. So if uh, if that setter is out in the country and it's hunting a little bit further out, um, you can let that golden. Don't let that golden run with them because some of them will. Even these cockers will try to run 150 yards with a pointer. Um Pull that golden in. Let them be a 50-yard dog, right? They're a sweeper. And um, and then handle that Llewellyn further out. But you got to focus on their individual jobs before you get to this point. Um, and then when, say, your Llewellyn's pointed, and, uh, and you know that they've got birds, well, bring that golden in, put them at heel, walk into the situation, walk out and around your pointed dog, flush and shoot. You let that go and do its job at that point when you're clear of your pointed dog, flush, shoot, you know, let it retrieve. But break down the situation. Don't just, you know, throw them together and expect them to gel. They got to understand their jobs. And then that way they'll also understand when you're asking them to do certain things. All right, man. Last but certainly not least, Mm -hmm. Garrett, Ted, myself, we all need a Frankie update, man. Let's hear it. Oh, uh, (laughs) well... Can, all right. Actually, can I just say one thing on yeah, on yeah. stuff before? So um, I love Ted's videos with uh, with his kids on there. And we're talking and, uh, Ted the Surveyor, Ted. Something. Yes, yeah. yes. I I thoroughly enjoy the videos um, with his kids because they yeah. they've got a great sense of humor and uh, yeah. I I just really enjoy seeing and and with all of you guys, um, your your young fathers and um, yeah. I I just enjoy seeing you guys put your, get your kids in and around the outdoors with the dogs. And, um, so Frankie, um, Frankie is a really, really capable and nice young dog. And, um, we've been doing some great work this spring and, uh, I'm pretty happy about where she's at. Um, one of the easiest dogs I've gotten to work, but that's also part of what she's out of and knowing those bloodlines, I think she's, out of that specific breeding, 
I think she's number eight or eight to 10. I, and I don't know exactly, um, out of that specific breeding, which is, um, Bob, uh, true confidence to a dog called Southern songbird and Southern songbird. Her call name is jazz. And, um, and so Frankie's out of that second breeding, but there's such a type to those dogs that, um, gosh, they're just easy and they're fun to be around and they're easy to work with. So, um, we've gotten some really good stuff done and I've had, I've had to put her to where she's in the driver's seat, so to speak, uh, with other dogs on the ground. And that means they got to take on a different role. They've got to be the, the command, so to speak of that. And, um, sure. she's done really well. Um, I, I'm very pleased with her and she's, like I said, she's very capable. Um, and for her to adjust to Idaho country while never being in it, she's gated correctly with her shoulders and her hips to where she gets over that country, um, really well with a level head. And I'm just real happy. So did you know, I had her brother. I don't, I, I don't her, know if I knew that. Yeah. I, so I had her brother, um, uh, named Tyke, um, littermate brother to her. And I actually just sold him back to, uh, Frank Lanasa. So Frank, no way. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and the whole the thing, original breeder of the dogs for folks that, don't yes. Know. Yeah. So, and Frank's, Frank's kind of like, well, Frank's a huge mentor for me, but he's, he's kind of like a father figure for me. He, he's just, I, I probably talk to him, uh, four or five times a week, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I sold him back to Frank after Texas this year. And, uh, I came right up to Frank's house because in Minnesota and, um, I was like, yeah, you know, you're, he was getting ready to go down to Georgia to work some dogs. And he had a, um, a young dog down there. That's actually a litter mate to Frankie and, and Tyke. And he was being worked down there. And, um, I said, why don't you take Tyke with you? And he goes, well, I won't see, you know, when am I going to see you? And I said, well, I'll see you this summer when I'm coming across the country to see my folks. And he goes, okay. So he ends up taking him down there. And, um, I don't know if it was Nilo or, or one of the other where Ronnie Bean trains or what, but, um, he went through one of his hours and training with eight Covey finds and like, and the whole time he's hunting, it doesn't matter if there's five other young dogs or puppies on the ground, he's hunting the whole time and he's pointing birds. He's letting you get off a horse and flush and shoot and do everything. And, um, but he's just gradually built to that. And so every time I got a report from Frank, Frank's like, Ryan, he's, he just, he's easy to be around. He's pleasant. He's, you know, I'm just, my blood pressure never goes up. And that's the same thing with Frankie. And I tell Garrett this all the time. I said, she's just enjoyable to be around. I don't have to stress over anything. She's quiet in the kennel. And actually she's almost too quiet at times. <laughs> um, and, uh, but she's just such an easy keeper. And, um, and so is he. And so, the one day I'm like, you know what? I, I just, I called Frank and I, or yeah, I think I called him and I said, do you want him? And he says, well, I, I don't know. He says, I, I don't want to take him away. I know how much you enjoy him. I said, well, think about it. Well, he, he calls me the next day and um, he goes, will you take these two dogs for him? And I said, let me, let me talk to Jess, the fiance about it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was how it went. And so two for one deal. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I've gotten to work, um, 
a brother to the male that I'm getting, and I and that's yeah. uh, my bud dog, and I really enjoy Buddy. Um, and then uh, Bev is a littermate to Brooke, and I had Bev on the the string this year, and she's a she's a little handful, but I, I enjoy her quite a bit. And so, and and he actually Frank took Tyke, and he's run him in four derbies now, and they placed um, two seconds and a first on three of the four derbies he's placed. So. And that's not from me. That's uh, that's from him getting that pattern put on him from the horse. Um, and uh, the only thing I didn't do, and, and this is probably the biggest compliment, is I didn't screw him up. Well, I look at Frankie and I'm like, Garrett, you didn't take anything out of her. This is great. This is, you know, you're you're working with a proper canvas right now. And uh, those dogs are just, oh, gosh, they're enjoyable. Yeah. So. Um, good stuff, I, man. Well, I'm yeah. looking forward to hunting over Frankie this fall. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, and hopefully, uh, I get to meet up with you guys this fall. I'm going to be in, uh, Montana, um, okay. all the way through October. Um, as of right now, I'm going to be working pr- for, uh, pro outfitters, um, for, uh, September and October. So, um, hopefully I get to meet up with you guys in person. Awesome, man. Yeah, I, I hope that happens, and uh, I think there's a pretty good chance, so sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. All right, man. That's all I got for questions. I Man, we took a lot of time for me today. I'm pretty sure this episode's going to be two-parter, so folks are hearing this. They will have just finished up part two. I appreciate it. Where should folks go to to learn a little bit more about you and or get in contact with you, Ryan? Um, well, we've got Instagram, Facebook, and we do have a website. Um, it's not set up where I want it right now, but, um, I'm one of those people that's pretty slow on it. So we've got all three born to run kennels.com, uh, born to run kennels at gmail.com is the email. And then, um, at born to run kennels for Instagram and then just born to run kennels and Facebook. Uh, I try to be prompt and get back to everyone. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess now we're just getting ready for summer camp, which is June 15th to August 30th, uh, in Montana. And, uh, kind of going, you know, one to the next this year. So are you filled up? Do you have spots open in summer camp? We have a couple. We actually got, uh, and I'm, like I said before, I'm extremely thankful for this. We've had a lot of people reaching out to where, uh, it, it's going to be a pretty full summer. And I actually hired okay. an assistant this year. Cool. Good. Good for so, you, man. Yeah. I'm really excited. Um, he's a person that I, I trust, uh, very much with my dogs and um, I would trust him with his patience with other people's dogs as well. So, um, and then we've got a litter of pups coming about May 20th. And uh, hopefully we can get something real good. She, she's been showing since about uh, day 28. So um, we're hoping it's a good size litter and they're, they're good and healthy. So, yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got a, you got a busy busy life going on right now but it sounds like it's it's all good stuff and your head's in the right place man so it was it was really fun catching up with you this will not be the last time we have you on the podcast always appreciate the time thanks for answering everybody's questions and we'll talk to you soon man yeah sounds good nick thank you again for having me appreciate it thanks Thanks for tuning in to the Project Upland Podcast. That does it for this episode of the show. A quick reminder that the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, and Dakota 283. 
If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.